I uh, had the pleasure of researching Kelly Richardson this past year and a half, I guess, as we have been, and we had only met a few days ago. So the things I started to see in her work that I thought were fascinating, and I wasn't sure if where we might use her work, how we might use her work. I'm happy to say we have acquired this work for our permanent collection. And the things that I saw in her work uh, appear were uh, an interest in duration that makes you aware of the act of watching and something that can be uh, engaging rather than just passive. I see also something that I have come to really enjoy, which is there seems to me often a sense of absurdity <laughs> in her work. And what I mean by this is there's a mystery of looking at an imagery that's simultaneously illusion and reality. Then there's something else that I see in her work over and over again, which is uh, suspension. It, there's always this feeling of time that's been halted or slowed or caught. And for me, it only emphasizes my own experience of time, which is how time flies. And I'd love to sort of get into one of your works where I feel like then I'm being, in a way, controlled. And, and that leads me to the next point of what I find is a kind of rhythm to experience her work is to hand her the reins until you get in sync with her pacing. And we've been thrilled to see that many people coming into the room and watching this work have been laying on the floor and sort of um, uh, letting its ravishing pace overtake them. And there's one more thing, uh, and that is the sound. There always is this subtle dimension, and if you will let me um, mix similes, it's like a dash of pepper. <laughs> In the audio that gives you this kind of kick or flash or, again, something that makes you want to lean in and get closer and spend more time with it. So at, I'd like to let let you hear from, the, I don't want to say the horse's mouth, that sounds kind of rude, but we've been emailing each other as Kelly, other Kelly, other Kelly. So I'd like to have the artist uh, go through her works to date, and you can see if what I've found in these works are things that you share, and then afterwards we'll have questions and discussions. So, cool. Kelly Richardson. Right, uh, well first uh, I have to say, you know, thanks for coming, and it's an absolute honor to be showing at the Hirshhorn. It really is, and uh, thank you so much, Kelly Gordon and uh, Carrie Brower for uh, their support of my work. Uh, and thanks to Al Miner and uh, Al Masino and Malena Kalinowska. Uh, you've all been fantastic. So I'm just going to contextualize the work uh, for you a bit um, and, uh, and, yeah, move on from there. Um, at the heart of all of my work lies an interest in creating contemplative spaces or things which, loaded with double meanings, inspire a series of conflicting sensations, eliciting dread and fascination in equal measure. They, in short, offer up visual metaphors for the sensations associated, for, uh, associated with the hugely complicated world we have created for ourselves, magnificent and equally dreadful. Uh, my video installations, which I've been focusing on for the last seven years or so, um, adopt the use of cinematic language to investigate notions of constructed environments and the blurring of the real versus the unreal. Uh, fantasies have come to dominate much of Western culture. As philosopher Slavo Žižek notes, 30% of us, the Earth's population, live in a digitalized universe that is artificially constructed, manipulated, and no longer some natural or traditional one. At all levels of our life, we seem to live more and more with the thing deprived of its substance. You get beer without alcohol, meat without fat, coffee without caffeine, and even virtual sex without sex. Virtual reality, to me, is the climax of this process. 
you now get reality without reality or a totally regulated reality. End quote. So uh, riding the line between fact and fiction, these works question our place in the world and the current radical redefinition of what it means to be a human being. Um, I've been making uh, videos since 1997 was the first one. Uh, this is one from 1998. I originally studied uh, painting and drawing in my undergrad at uh, the Ontario College of Art and uh, Design in Toronto. And by the time I was graduating, I was wondering why I was painting at all, like what, what I was making work about, actually. So it, my practice became idea-based rather than medium-based. Uh, and more and more over the years, that it, I just kept returning to, to video. Um, and there's always a very painterly, I think, treatment of, of video. So when I say that I studied drawing and painting, people have said that makes quite a lot of sense. This is uh, Camp from 1998, um, and for the podcasting uh, listeners, it, it's a, a moon, basically, uh, which is shot um, uh, from behind a campfire, and I'll show you that in a minute, um, and I'm cooking popcorn. Um, so this is one of the earliest video works, and what's interesting to note about the early works is that due to the expense of editor, renting uh, editors and editing suites, um, these, these videos are really simple point-and-shoot um, with not a great deal of intervention on my part, um, though they all have a kind of, of illusion or effect. Uh, this is Glow, also from 1998. Um, basically, it's a, a video uh, of light emanating from a television set. Um, and from these early works all the way until present day, I've been interested in video as moving painting or a photograph you could consider it as, um, where there's no clear beginning, middle, or end. Um, when I do make work which features a beginning, middle, and end, I've actually only done it twice, uh, they're very short. So I'm, I'm quite interested in the viewer actually being in control of how long they look at, at these works within a gallery space. Uh, this one is a car stopped at a stop sign in the middle of nowhere in front of a landscape. It's a very descriptive title from 2001. Uh, this is an image from a B-movie called Circuitry Man, um, where this moment is meant to be funny. They're driving through the desert. There's no sign of humanity anywhere, and it stops strangely enough at a stop sign. Ha, ha, ha. And then the car moves on, uh, but actually extracted from that, and I think it uh, opens up to much more than, than simply funny. Um, uh, and this... So what I had intended to do was use the bottom half of the image and replace the sky and, and add the sound of a car idling, which is what I have done. But um, this was a really pivotal time for me uh, in my video production as um, I had asked for a quote from a local media house to produce this work and uh, as I didn't have my own equipment, as most artists didn't at the time, uh, nor the knowledge to create it. Uh, and the quote was $5,000. And this was in... 2000, I believe, um, and that at that point, in 1999 actually, a, um, Apple Computers released the first iMac, which for the first time meant that artists could have uh, their own editing suites in their homes, which has really, um, you know, made it possible for, for, um, for artists to interact with video on a, on a much more personal, uh, um, expansive way, I guess. Um, since then. So I 
instead of uh, obviously spending $5,000 on one video, I bought the equipment and started learning myself and have now turned into a big geek. And um, yeah, and it's just getting more and more complicated, which we'll get to. But um, as I mentioned, uh, I'm, in, I'm quite interested in the idea of uh, multiple realities, um, particularly with regards to our current media culture, which acts as the interface through which we understand the world, um, TV, film, uh, media, the internet, etc. Uh, within that, truth is difficult, if not impossible, to locate, it seems, with the line between fantasy and reality becoming more and more obscured. As such, over the last few years, I've been focusing on these uh, photographs and videos, which uh, reflect that in some way, combining both real and constructed elements. <clears throat> so that's all that happens for about 30 minutes. Um, because this, this, the bottom portion of the image has actually been essentially pasted over top of footage that I shot. Occasionally there's a, a bird or an insect that flies by that is completely the wrong scale. So <laughs> like, a, like a pterodactyl version of a fly or dragonfly flying by. Just comic moment. Um, this is, uh, there's a lot there from 2001. Um, and uh, I've often talked about an interest in simultaneity um, and affect, where you're not quite sure how to feel about the work. It's equally beautiful as it is alarming. And I quite like the idea of this beautiful, cliched sunset uh, over a glass-like lake being interrupted visually and orally by swarming mosquitoes. Being from North America, you probably are very familiar with this in the summer. Uh, when I show this in England, people are a little bit confused. They don't have mosquitoes there, so. Or, or uh, uh, screens. Um, this is the Supernatural series, which is a series of photographs from 2001 to 2004. Uh, essentially, it's a series of landscape photographs which have been appropriated from horror movies, uh, typically the campy slashy, uh, slasher rather type from the 80s, such as Friday the 13th, Swamp Thing, Sleepaway Camp, etc. And these moments act as scene setters uh, just before or after a bloodbath. Uh, and I was interested in their surprising beauty considering their uh, context and otherwise dire storylines. And this is somewhat problematic to say, but actually I found them to be more real as representations of landscape than traditional landscape photographs, if that makes any sense whatsoever, because of the context. Uh, the images were taken uh, by way of a Polaroid off of a television television screen, and obviously the nature of the Polaroid being unable to focus on what it's looking at, it's a flat, flat screen, couldn't focus, um, and of, of course the Polaroid would distort things uh, anyway. Um, uh, so it, it helped to kind of uh, jack up the surreal, uh, strange quality of these landscapes. And then they were drum scanned and reproduced many times larger, 39 inches by 32. Um, uh, this is Friday the 13th. They are just named whatever movie I poached them from. Um, and throughout all of my work, uh, I've been interested in simultaneity as a way of smating uh, feelings, conflicting feelings, actually, associated with the everyday. And the Supernatural series, uh, for me, nails this uh, by alluding to particular tensions around nature and society, promise, fear, and the beautiful and horrid. For me, they collapse a kind of fundamental and problematic condition of modern culture in relationship with itself and that which supports it, the natural world, and articulates complex anxieties and feelings associated with that. This is frogs. 
<coughs> the IMDb tagline for this movie is Today the Pond, Tomorrow the World. The Fog. Also from the Frog, the Fog, rather. Um, <coughs> so, yeah, stealing, stealing the following quote from a blog which featured this work, in today's world, perhaps it's only in the wake of unspeakable, gratuitous violence that our cloudy vision acquires infinite depth of field and a sense of peace, however misbegotten. That was very appropriate. Razorback. Swamp Thing. Pumpkinhead. Uh, also from Pumpkinhead. Um, and what's interesting about this genre of filmmaking, um, the horror films, is that the majority of the storylines seem to be based within rural or remote settings where nature harbors something to be greatly feared, whether it's some kind of abnormally large animal predator, uh, plague of vengeful frogs, uh, animal-human hybrid, etc. And it reveals uh, interesting anxieties and insecurities about the non-human world when in reality, and this I think uh, goes without saying, um, we are by far the most destructive, dangerous species on this planet, both to the non natural non-human world and to ourselves. Uh, this is an uh, installation shot from the Guangzhou Biennale, which is actually where I met Carrie Brower um, and Milena, Milena um, Kalinowska, who had curated me into Guangzhou Biennale in 2004. Um, and this strange wave-like structure in the middle is just part of the architecture of the space. It's not part of the work. Uh, this is Hell the Devil from 2002. It's basically a video of a tree blowing wildly and impossibly in the middle of a thick forest. And this is just an installation shot of it in Manchester in England. Uh, and this is the sequel from 2004, and it's actually one of the few videos, one of the two that I mentioned earlier, which features a beginning, middle, and end, so I will play you the whole thing. You know you're in England when uh, you can't get away from sheep sounds. Uh, <clears throat> this is uh, Furman Drive from 2005. Uh, essentially, this video is a tracking shot of a typical suburban street in North America. Uh, houses come and go as we progress down the road until we pass by a house that is spinning. Um, this took approximately two years to produce um, as I had to faithfully recreate the house uh, in a little 3D maquette. <clears throat> Film that spinning. Um, remove that from that its environment um, and then basically put it into uh, the footage which you're about to see frame by frame. And this is it installed in England at the Northern Gallery for Contemporary Art. Uh, from the essay which accompanied this exhibition um, by Alistair Robin Robertson, um, quote, in mainstream cinema, the tracking shot is usually an introductory device to establish location or the tenor of forthcoming events. Tracking or panning, panning shots of whitewashed facades and picket fences are part and parcel of recent cinema's image repertoire, most often signifying wholesome suburbia. Of the many examples that might spring to mind, Furman Drive is perhaps most reminiscent of the opening sequence of Blue Velvet, where David Lynch makes explicit the convention that white-painted fences and facades act as a visual metaphor for their inhabitants, facades of moral whiteness. Like in Blue Velvet, Richardson wrongfoots us by lulling us into a false sense of security. Having watched the scene from a consistent position and speed for nearly a minute, we register an almost subliminal change of angle, then taking us unawares, the house that pulls into view begins to rotate 
fully through 360 degrees, frame by frame, all that a solid melts into air. Richardson's alchemical illusion with matter and space render the scene, renders the scene entrancing yet alarming. It becomes more like an apparition than a documentary. This is the street that I grew up on in Guelph, Canada, uh, Ontario, and that's my house. And here we are, Exiles of the Shattered Star, which is in this exhibition uh, from 2006. I'm now shooting in high definition, um, and from the point of Furman Drive, really, the ideas are becoming more and more complex and difficult to produce um, with, uh, yeah, very, very lengthy. It requires quite a lot of time to produce each one. Um, this was shot in the Lake District in England and then dreamt up in my studio. Um, and I'm interested in the multiple ways that someone could interpret this work. Um, I like the idea of a shattered star uh, falling slowly to Earth, or as a friend uh, put it recently, firing falling chunks of heaven. Um, they could be, they're, they're very uniform, they're falling too slowly, so they could be travel pods of some sort, they could be, uh, you know, visitation. Um, when this work was reviewed in Canada, uh, the critic wrote, quote, drifting down through the brightening sky or what look like flaming nuggets of something or other, the exiles of the work's title. These flaming, torch-like bundles fall steadily into the scene, but not hectically, the way gravity would impel them to fall. Rather, and this makes the scene even creepier, they come settling softly to earth, splashing down into the lake, more visitation than threat. It's a hypnotic work. Flaming star bits falling to earth ought to look catastrophic, apocalyptic in a sci-fi sort of way, but not Richardson's. Here, everything is silence. The sounds of birds is louder than the sound of the burning things and softness. Are these star exiles angels or some loosing of benediction upon the earth? Or is this the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whisper? End quote. That's Gary Michael Dalt from the Globe and Mail. Um, this, uh, the title of this, Exiles of the Shattered Star, was actually named after a guild or a team, in other words, in a massively multiplayer online game called the World of Warcraft. Uh, and I'm quite interested in these online communities developing like Second Life and, and online gaming, where large numbers of people are swapping their real life to spend copious amounts of time in these online worlds. Um, and I could not think of a more apt title, really, for a team than Exiles of the Shattered Star, if you consider these people as the exiles. And I'll not show you that video because you can just go upstairs and see it. Um, and this is the original uh, installation of it in Toronto. Um, and yes, this is now part of the collection at the Hirshhorn, which I'm completely thrilled about. Uh, and this was it in Montreal. <coughs> Uh, this is Wagon's Roll, originally made in 2003, remade in 2007. Uh, it's basically uh, the image of a rather seemingly standard uh, image, uh, mini-climax, rather, from an action movie uh, where a car flies off of a cliff. I, don't th I think there's a law in Hollywood where you cannot make an action movie without flinging a car off a cliff or something. It seems so standard. Um, in, my, in my version... Uh, it's permanently arrested in midair, uh, and it's otherwise a rather pleasant day. Blue sky, fluffy clouds, warm sun, etc. Um, and this is premiering at the moment in a solo exhibition at Hall Walls in Buffalo. Um, and from, from that essay, John Massier wrote, writes, 
Can you extract glee, however unspecific and inarticulate, from peril and unease, and what does it mean to do that? In Richardson's work, it becomes a matter of very specific faith, not in creed or screed, but in possibility. When your universe consists of a series of indeterminably extended moments, there is always ample room for possibility, no matter the circumstance. In Wagon's role, a car hangs in midair against a range of mountains and a blue cloud-dotted sky, a plume of dust shooting from its rear. The average pop-saturated viewer will immediately recall Thalma and Louise and the freeze-frame image that ends that famous film in a somewhat appropriate reference, busting out of boundaries, total individual empowerment, friends to the end, yee-haw, ho and hum. Richardson employs a light touch that tends to sidestep such thematic, obvious broadsides. More accurately, Wagon's role is Richardson's Chuck Close moment. A longtime animation director, Jones sent Wiley Coyote off a thousand cliffs, followed by a directional puff of smoke, only to hang in, in the air before cold reality set in and sent our anti-hero and his desire for roadrunner flesh plummeting in a long, slow drop to reality. Richardson depicts the eternal moment before the fall. It might all collapse, but in Richardson's work, might is a two-way street. It might all come to an end in a blaze of absurdity. Then again, we might just make it after all. <clears throat> Moving on to the latest work, Forest Park uh, from 2007. Again, high definition. This is a two-channel projection now uh, and is the first of a series of videos that will involve... Um, well, actually, it's the second of a series of videos that will involve multiple projections. Um, so essentially, it's a video of a not-so-freshly cleared area of land for a future housing development. Um, and the lights were actually installed in this space uh, before any building or, or really anything uh, had taken place. Um, the lights didn't function, however, so I had to light them up uh, and darken the sky. And there's a, again, there's a very painterly approach to this. Um, my camera wouldn't be able to film something like that, so it's all been faked, essentially. Um, and I was interested in, a, in creating a kind of um, poetic space where it appeared as though these lights, which flicker, um, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but when lights first come on at night and Mercury's heating up, they tend to flicker and they shift through hue a bit, and it's really rather beautiful. Um, and so all of them are kind of doing that. But instead of the idea of the Mercury heating up, what if electricity had intelligence? And this was a conversation between electricity and crickets emanating from the space. So I quite like to imagine it as a purpose-built purpose space for these crickets and electricity to have a conversation. It's one of those pieces that you kind of have to see quite large and crisp because there are more stars in it and, uh, and the, the stars are also flickering, um, as stars do. Um, but it's very difficult to tell, uh, it's smaller. And so this is, this is an installation shot of it. There's a, um, a solo show up at the Kitchener Waterloo Art Gallery in um, uh, Kitchener, Canada. Uh, and um, I think it's about 25 feet, basically two similar walls to what is upstairs that Exiles is showing on. Um, uh, human... Human absence, you might have noticed, is actually pretty integral to these works um, as it, it creates a vehicle um, for the viewer to find themselves within the work on a much more personal level um, as opposed to the viewer, or the focus rather, being on a character or person. Um, as Gris Griselda Pollock puts it, landscape, as we know, 
can also be an imaginary space. More than topography, its painted representations have offered poetic means to imagine our place in the world. Represented land is more often than not a reflection of the human subject subjectivity which projects itself onto a space, either of its sheltering habitation or its sublime otherness. The paradox of landscape is that it is both what it is other to the human subject, land, place, nature, and yet it is also the space for projection and can become, therefore, a sublimated self-portrait. Uh, and this is The Great Destroyer, uh, also from 2007. And this is, this is an ambitious, uh, could be up to 12 projections, it could be more, it could be five projections. It's configurable. Uh, and basically, I'm trying to create a forest setting within a space so you weave uh, in throughout the, the, the projections. And the unexpected element is actually not in the video this time, but in the audio, uh, which has, which features a bird uh, imitating car alarms, the sound of a car alarm, chainsaws, gunshots, and cameras clicking. Um, and that, it's a real bird, actually, uh, the lyre bird in Australia, which has adopt, <clears throat> adopted these sounds as part of its mating call, uh, which is awfully profound, considering it's the sound of the territory, his territory being destroyed. And these are just uh, still images from the projections. And this is a bit of the audio. These are all mock-ups. It hasn't been installed. It's a bit of a difficult piece to install. Um, this is Meridian, or a mock-up of, of, it actually won't look like this. I'll explain in a minute. But uh, Meridian is basically, it's an extended, um, could be probably three, three projections uh, long, so a really long, long wall of uh, endless body of water. And in that body of water, there's a, a skyscraper that's floating impossibly. Um, this looks like quite a perfect summer day, but actually it's going to change quite a lot. It's going to be much more Turner-esque, stormy, but beautiful. Um, and this is one of the, perhaps, the most difficult piece to make at the moment, which is why it doesn't exist as of yet. Uh, I did start it in 2006, the idea, but if essentially I set it up on my computer at home, basically I'm trying to do things at a post-production level that people should not be trying to do on a home machine. Um, in the film industry, they have things called render farms, which uh, is basically a room with networked computers that all share the, the workload of, of calculating uh, this kind of data. And um, in, in, within film, special effects, the, the special effects tend to be very, very quick. So you believe in it very quickly. You don't have long enough to study it to figure out what's wrong with it. So that the suspension of, of disbelief um, falls apart, basically. But these are half an hour shots. So um, yeah, it's an, an incredible uh, amount of data to calculate. So all that water is actually uh, created by a program called Maya. And, uh, um, and the clouds and all the mist and the, the storm will all be created by the, the, uh, that program as well. So until, basically, if I, if I started rendering this, which is, again, just the term that's used to calculate all that data, if I hit render on my machine, it would take six months, and I could not stop it. And I just have to <laughs> hope that no power outages or whatever. So at the moment, it, this is on hold until I can find a really a viable way of of uh, producing it. But I'll just show you uh, a little test render 
but I did give you an idea of the movement. And again, it'll look quite different, but uh, this is Helen Wolf. Um, at the moment, it's just a photograph um, from 2007, but it will be a video at some point. I'm not going to talk so much about that because I think it's probably going to change as I make it, but I'll leave you with that image. Uh, this is At War with the Mystics, and this is going to be multiple channels, um, either flat screen or projection. And basically, it's combining two things, mammatus clouds, which are pouch-like uh, cloud structures, uh, super rare clouds, but they are actually natural, um, which happen in sinking air and are usually found after the worst of a thunderstorm. Uh, they don't stick around for long, 20 minutes or, or less. And I've never seen one personally. I've never been fortunate enough to, to see clouds like this, but uh, super, super rare. And essentially, the, the, the bottom part, this is a bad Photoshop job, by the way, but it just gives you an idea, um, is an extended uh, industrial landscape. In, I live in the northeast in England, and Middlesbrough, uh, voted the worst place in Britain to live, um, is, is basically an industrial, it's a, a massive industrial landscape. And uh, Ridley Scott is actually from there, and this landscape apparently inspired um, Blade Runner. So basically what's happening is that out of the chimneys of this, this, this uh, industrial hell is pumping out these super rare clouds, considered one of the most beautiful things on Earth and from the worst place in Britain to live. Uh, and this is Twilight Avenger, uh, which is essentially, uh, it will be a video of a stag that's emitting a glowing green vapor. Uh, some, some people look at this and, um, and immediately read environmental concerns into it, and other people look at it and think that it's some kind of deer, ghost, angel thing, which is quite nice because it's almost polar opposites. Um, so I'll be working on this along with At War with the Mystics when I return to the UK. Um, I've got a residency there to do that. And uh, I'll not, well, okay, this is going to be a very, very silent uh, video or almost silent video. And the only sound is when, when Steg walks, you'll hear the crunch of, of the foliage. And, and occasionally he expels a uh, breath of air. Um, and I'm going to end on that, but um, you may have noticed that I haven't spoken about uh, definitive meanings really in any of the works. Um, and I don't think that, I don't think the, I don't think of my work as having specific meaning, but rather they operate within a larger, uh, within the ambiguity um, uh, of a larger framework, um, the interest in multiple realities, uh, negotiating the line between fact and fiction, simultaneity and affect, the sublime, the condition of modern culture in relationship with the natural world that it supports it, etc., etc. <clears throat> in an interview uh, with curator Crystal Mowry uh, recently for the exhibition in Canada, uh, she asked the following question, which, seem, which seems appropriate uh, to end on. Uh, quote, uh, I, I read a quote recently that seemed resonant with your work. Quote, perhaps the, perhaps the sublime is irony at its purest and most effective, a promise of transcendence leading to the edge of an abyss. Still, there may be a sense, of, um, a sense in which even such falls come, come to depend on ways of thinking that have no relation uh, to any underlying material cause. End quote. Uh, in its most basic form, the sublime has stood, sorry, has stood for effect, 
the, un, the overwhelming contrast between the imposing natural world, best represented by mountains and gorges, and the relative insignificance of human perception. But postmodern versions of the sublime run the gamut, fr gamut from highlighting an almost comic lack of certainty to attempts at creating sustained shock. I wouldn't say your practice is either ironic or shocking, but by dodging certainty and meaning, you offer a heady comment on the sublime impossibility. My answer to that was, uncertainty is a rather apt note to end on. If these works act as visual metaphors for our modern reality, a wavering hybrid of fact and fiction, how can you speak of certainty within that? <laughs>